Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I am doing great. We are going way back, way, way back into the history of this podcast to bring to light an episode that happened in 2015. It was the eighth ever episode of this podcast, but the topic is as relevant today as it was back then. And it holds a special place in my heart because... Dr. Mary Bisson, who I interviewed for this subject, was the first professor I ever took a true botany class from. So she really helped set the stage for my love of plants. And of course, that led to indefensible plants. So thank you to Dr. Bisson. And let's learn what she has to say, because she studies a unique photosynthetic organism called Cara. I think technically it is considered an algae, but when scientists looked at it genetically, it is more closely related to plants than it is algae. And it's fascinating. And Dr. Bisson's career has been looking at this plant as sort of a model organism. I'm going to let her describe why that is and what is so special about this wonderful genus. Before I get to that, I just want to say this podcast would never have been possible without people to support it. And there's a lot of great ways of doing that. One of the best ways is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, where you can get kickbacks for a little financial contribution each month. I couldn't be doing this without my patrons, so a big thank you goes out to them. But that is entirely enough for me. I don't want to keep you from this episode any longer. Let's jump back into the wonderful world of Kara and learn why it is being used as a model organism. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Mary Bisson. I hope you enjoy. Saturday we had an eight-hour lab, and it was in the field. This is undergrad? Yeah, undergrad. Wow. And if it was rainy and we couldn't get out in the field, um, he would give an eight-hour lecture. <laughs> eight hours. He would just, you know, it was uh, like, plug them in and he yeah, would just go. Yeah, here we go, guys. <laughs> no. And you guys were like... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How do you survive that? <laughs> you were probably better off, I guess, in the long run. It's like, at some point, you absorb something in those eight hours. <laughs> It's true. Wow. So, Dr. Bisson, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Happy to do it. You've been a great supporter this uh, this whole time, and it's nice to be able to talk to you now about some of your specialties. So, you study this thing called Cara. Cara, right? So, Cara is really interesting. It's been it's been a subject of interest for um, plant biologists for a long time for a lot of different reasons. Um, for one thing, on the taxonomic end. Um, we know it's most closely related to higher plants. Wow. So, so if you're looking at the evolution of higher plants, um, even when people were just using um, morphological characteristics, mm-hmm. um, there were some kind of feeble arguments that it was m- more closely related. But as we um, drilled down and started looking at um, cell structure, biochemistry, and then molecular characteristics, it became clear not only was it the most closely related to higher plants, but it was more closely related to higher plants than it is to algae. Really? Yeah, so it's a real transitional form. That's incredible. Now, I've always considered it like a macroalgae in the strictest sense, but I'd never realized it was that distant, at least from that lineage, and more towards what we would consider like a land or true plant. Yeah, it's not. M- many um, taxonomists don't put it in the green algae at all, they put hmm. it in with the streptophytes. Which is with with the mosses and the ferns really? and, and the angiosperms, yeah. So um, that's fascinating. Yeah. Now, it's I think it's really interesting when you consider the amount of time we as 
just biologists or any sort of natural thinking has looked at morphological characteristics and classified organisms based on that. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like when you look at or you read Origin of Species and then think of the research today, you look and you go, he got so much right. To be able to look at this plant, um, which, you know, it does look like a plant, but to spend that much time morphologically, taxonomically uh, classifying this what it is, to confirm that with phylogenetic analysis is pretty incredible. It is. It. I mean, the, the phylogenetic analysis has overturned so many things, mm-hmm. um, both in the plant and animal and all over. The phylogenetic has, has really revolutionized the way we think about it. But in this one case, it's confirmatory. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, APG, APG2 didn't totally tear the entire tree apart. <laughs> right, that's right. So... In classifying it now as more closely related to what we would consider true plants, um, you know, is this showing a transitional phase that really did start in the water, do you think? Um, you know, because they found, like, Archaefructus, they argue that some of the earlier sister lineages to what we would consider the first true flowering plants probably started aquatically. Uh, and even now, liverworts being some of the more simpler ones, very much tied to moisture. So does this kind of support that, that... It really started at the edge and worked its way up. Yes, I think it really does. And in particular, that freshwater. Mm-hmm. Because we think when we think of animal evolution, we're always thinking the ocean. Yeah. But, but I think plants, uh, uh, their start was really more from freshwater. Mm. And, and the caraphyte algae are um, by and large a freshwater group. And uh, when we look at plants, if we, if we look at finer points of their physiology... They don't depend on sodium the way animals do. Uh, animals need sodium for their action potentials mm-hmm. and for various other things. And uh, although we look at excess sodium as being bad because of high blood pressure, etc., we need sodium to survive. Yeah, yeah. Plants don't. Yeah, but there's something interesting here in that you mentioned the freshwater aspect, and I always thought about that too because everyone, again, looks at animal evolution from an, uh, a marine standpoint. But show me one amphibian today that can tolerate salt water. <laughs> And I think the same goes for plants, as you said. In fact, salt is quite lethal to most plant species, except for some extreme halophytes, which uh, are pretty impressive. And then you kind of have these transitional brackish water ones. But um, we'll get to that in a minute. You use, in your research as a plant physiologist, you're using uh, cara as kind of a model organism. Why Why would that be? Uh, so cara has been... Well, so one reason to use a model organism is because other people have used it as a model organism, and therefore you have this background of research. But but we can take that question back where I think you want it to start with, and it is, why do people like it as a model yeah, organism? Yeah. Well, so you have to understand um, that cara is built on this sort of modular system. So it looks like a lot of higher plants, although the way it gets its structure is very different. Mm-hmm. But it looks like a lot of higher plants in that it will have a, um, it, first of all, it's a macroalga. It's not pond scum. You know, it's a macroalga. <laughs> yeah. And so they can be like you know, uh, two feet tall. I've seen some impressive specimens. Yeah, yeah. So they can be quite tall. And they're built on this sort of modular scale. There'll be a little um, circle or whorl of, of things that you can think of as leaves, although they're not leaves, but they're we call them branchlets. And then there'll be a, and that's called a node, just mm-hmm. like the, on a plant, you have a node yeah, of like leaves. A bamboo node or something? Yeah, right. And then you have a, an internode, which stretches from that, and then there'll be another, another whorl of these branchlets, and then an internode. And so it's built on this, on this modular, um, uh, structure. And these internodes, uh, can be, I don't know, five or six, seven inches mm. long. And the, the amazing thing to a cell biologist is that the internode is a single cell. Really? One cell. Hmm. 
No way. Yeah, true, true. Many nuclei, many nuclei, hundreds of nuclei, but a single cell. How does that work? Well, how does that work? That's, that's interesting from, <laughs> from a, a number of different questions. How does it work developmentally? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's not a dividing cell. By the time it starts elongating, it's done with dividing. So it's simply growing. Yeah, well, I, I take the nuclei divide. Okay. So, so that's one way it works, because it has hundreds of nuclei. Um, so, so it's not distant from its instruction center, right? So yeah, it, yeah. they can be uh, directing the uh, physiology, biochemistry, et cetera, of the cell, because there's so many of them. But um, uh, from a physical point of view, it works because cytoplasm is streamy. So there's a constant rotation of the cytoplasm within the cell. So that if you were trying to get something to diffuse from the lower end of a 7-inch cell to the higher end, it would take centuries. Yeah. But um, this plant has uh, uh, what's called cytoplasmic streaming, and, and there's a circular movement of the, of the uh, cytoplasm. And it's driven by actin myosin, which is the same um, molecules that drive muscle movement. Wow. It's driven by actin-myosin, and so it rotates around quite rapidly. It's the fastest known myosin, much faster than muscle myosin. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, and, so what it, and so it moves at about 100 micrometers per second. I don't know right. what that is in miles per hour. Yeah, I'll probably let you pretty that. decent. It's pretty <laughs> it's decent. And, and, and so it moves. Uh, uh, so that enables rapid communication, not only from one end of this cell to the other, but from one node to the other. Wow. So, so that was one of the things that first attracted people. When they first started looking at um, plants and so forth under the microscope, they saw this movement mm-hmm. inside the cell. And so there's been a lot of work done on that. Um, but the other thing is, because it's a big cell, um, you can do things with it that you couldn't do mm. with other cells. And so one of the first things that was done was microelectrodes were placed inside the cell so that you could measure the electrical properties of the cell. And this was done at the earliest in 1898. Wow. So this was the first cell for which electrical properties were measured using intracellular measurements. So you know, if you know the story of Volta and frog legs and stuff, you know, people knew that there was something electrical that was important in, in living tissue. But this was the first time it had been measured inside the cell. That's incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had no concept of DNA. We had no idea the continents were moving, but we were sticking <laughs> electrodes in cells. That's wow. right. That's, that's right. amazing. So, um, so, so, based on these two beginnings, the interest in the cell biology of this, mm-hmm. and then it, especially the electrophysiology, it has been a model. And it has turned out that a lot of the things that we have learned about pl- uh, uh, membrane transport, the ability of things to cross the membrane, based on this, wow. uh, have have proved to be also true of higher plants. Not surprising now that we know how closely it's related. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of those things are pretty conserved throughout higher plants if this is setting the standard for (laughs) the transitional phase. So there's a vast body of literature on this stemming back to 1800s at least. Um, It's a large organism, but still relatively simple. Mm -hmm. Um, So it offers you a lot of practical reasons for studying it, but... At the same time, it also has this genetic component that we're now considering. So this overall is painting a really good picture for yep. this as a study species. Is it easy to um, grow and right. cultivate? So, um, s- some species are. So uh, one of the things, uh, uh, there, there are a lot of different species of mm-hmm. it um, growing in different habitats. Uh, some are quite common and widespread, cosmopolitan. 
and some are, are specialized for certain areas, and some are easy to grow, and some are not. I think and, I read about one being actually critically endangered, at least one. I'm sure there's yes. plenty more, but that's good to know. So, for instance, um, uh, when I started uh, working on um, salt tolerance, and I was looking for salt tolerant species, mm -hmm. remember I said they're largely freshwater, but some of them do grow in salt water. I went to some salt lakes uh, up in Saskatchewan. So Ooh. Saskatchewan, um, you have to remember, it's, it's geologically immature because mm -hmm. the, it's been scraped clean by the glaciers. And that means that a lot, and it's very flat. Mm -hmm. So that means that it has a lot of lakes and things which don't have good drainage patterns. So so the composition of these lakes is, is very strongly dependent on the local uh, comp composition of the, of the um, soils around them. Mm -hmm. Because they don't communicate with other lakes, yeah, and um, so you can go up to these. They're called prairie potholes. Oh, okay. So you can go by and you can see these prairie potholes, and one will be fresh water, and one will have sodium chloride, and one will have sodium sulfate, and one will have magnesium sulfate. Oh wow! And so all these lakes will be different. Yeah. So I went up and I did a little tour, and I collected algae from various salt lakes, and and my original goal was to, to collect the same species from lakes with different salinities, mm -hmm. and, and we know when they started evolving because there was nothing there during the ice age, right? <laughs> and so we yeah. had this nice, we could, might have this evolutionary Resets history. the clock pretty distinctly. That's right, that's yeah. right. Um, uh, but the first thing that happened was there were so many species, I couldn't find one that was in all the different lakes. <laughs> and the second thing is when I brought them to the lab, not all of them grew them. Mm. So um, I have this sort of Darwinian attitude towards what I study, you know? <laughs> yeah. If it grows well... <laughs> well, then that's okay. I'll work on this one. So, fortunately, I did find one. And then I have been working for years before that on a, um, a, a one of the standard model species, which does grow very well in the lab. Yeah, yeah. When people ask me what the native habitat of this species is, um, I always say the lab. Because <laughs> I got it from someone yeah. who had had it in the lab for 15 years, and he had got it from someone who had had it in the lab, and he had got it from someone who had collected it in Tasmania. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> um, so you know, yeah. it's it's been, it's just been a model system for a long time. That's interesting. So, in growing this, uh, you know, I'm assuming liverworts have this alternation of generations: gametophyte to sporophyte and back again. Ferns have it. So, this is a species that also exhibits this this pattern. Well, interestingly, no. Really, it does not have an alternation of generations, um, uh, and that's rare in mm -hmm. algae and in in the, in the plants in general. Um, most algae do, some don't. For instance, diatoms also don't. Yeah. yeah. And so, like diatoms, this species um, is uh, uh, has only one. That big gener that big generation that you see mm -hmm. doesn't have a separate gametophyte. It doesn't have spores. It never ha makes spores. Its uh, zygote divides and gives rise to the rest to the to the new plant. So it's oh, okay. more like the animal system in that sense. Interesting. Now, I have a funny anecdote. I have a the first real introduction to finding this, other than seeing it in you know aquarium stores or fishing, catching it on my line, um, a friend of mine is dissecting a lot of fish from Lake Erie, and he opened up the stomach contents, and for weeks he was finding these weird sort of egg-shaped masses that had this spiral structure to them, and he kept saying, do you have any idea what this is? And we kept looking and looking, we'd break them open, and it was nothing, it wasn't an egg sac of anything that I could tell. And then one day I was walking by a, uh, an aquatics lab and I looked up and I saw this poster and it just said, Cara Uu Spore. And I was like, oh my goodness. It's yep. like, I don't, it's not a seed, right? It, no, it's, it's, it's a spore. So what it, uh, so it's not a seed in the sense it doesn't have an embryo, right? Because mm -hmm. what's inside a seed is, is an embryo. Mm -hmm. um, what the spore is, it's, it's, um, 
So after sexual reproduction, uh, the sperm and the egg meet, um, and you get the diploid zygote, and then it forms a, um, uh, a resistive coating. Oh, okay. a resistive, uh, so one of the early reasons, this gets back to the evolution, that uniquely among algae, the female organ, uh, which is called the gametangia, mm-hmm. has, has a, 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 a covering of sterile cells. Cells that aren't involved in making gametes, and and Cara is alone among the algae hmm. that does this, and of course all higher plants have this, mm-hmm. and so this was one of the clues that this might be high, closely related to a higher plant. Um, uh, and so what happens with these spores is that uh, the, these cells around around the the egg, once the egg is fertilized, they form this tough uh, coat. Oh. And, and and so the spiral the spiral form you see is this because these uh, cells are in a spiral. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about these spores is they are it's again the first time you see an algae waterproofing compounds. So there's a waterproofing compound called sporopollenin, which coats this oogonium, um, and uh, it makes it very resistant. So mm-hmm. cara that grows, for instance, in ephemeral ponds, mm-hmm. these these can be left behind. And uh, will resist drying out, and mm-hmm. then when when the spring rains or whatever come again, um, they they can germinate. So it's a fantastic dispersal mechanism too. It's a fast, fantastic dispersal mechanism, um, and it's also it, so it settles in into the sediment. Yeah, and it's also easily fossilized, so ah. that uh, the the presence of these uh, uh, and when they're fossilized, they're called gyragonites. Because when they refer, they have a different name because the yeah, geologists yeah. didn't know what no. they were, right? I also thought ammonites were coiled snakes for well, a there, time. So. There you yeah. go. So the geologists didn't know. So they gave them their own name, which is chiragonites. Mm-hmm. And so these, this is, uh, first of all, it's a way of tracing the evolution of a plant, which is mostly soft-bodied and yeah. which, whose body will not be preserved in, in uh, ge- geological record. But also, people w- will make the assumption that uh, if they see these chiragonites, that the sediment was laid down in freshwater. Oh, okay. So they've been a very useful tool for the geologists. Wow, so this is becoming a model organism across the board. For a lot of people, yeah, <laughs> for a lot of different fields. That's amazing. And I've heard of some pretty incredible longevity stories from these oospores in upwards of decades. Yeah, so, yeah. so this is something that could persist and potentially you know, live through some serious disaster periods and kind of yeah. start anew. Yeah, mm-hmm. So you mentioned that there is different levels of salt tolerance amongst the species. And in looking at your CV, your research has focused a lot on tolerances of different kinds of environmental contaminants, which I guess in the case of anthropogenic uh, systems, salt can be considered one of them, cadmium is another one. Um, So what brought you to using this plant and looking at environmental contaminants and stressors? Well, so I did my research on a different alga, a seaweed, but it was an alga that was... um, uh, exposed to tidal changes, and so I was interested in how it survived these regular salinity changes. But one of the things um, I that caught my attention as I was studying membrane transport processes in plants mm-hmm. was that, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, land plants and most plants don't require sodium. Mm-hmm. And um, it turns out that the way they run their electrical properties in, in animal cells, that's based largely on sodium and potassium. Mm-hmm. In plant cells, it's very different, and it's based mostly on protons. Um, mm. 
And so this, uh, the hydrogen atoms. And so this is part of the argument that plants arose in freshwater because the entire way they run their system, I, I, I talk about animals being on a proton, uh, 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 a sodium economy and plants being on a proton economy. It, uh, oh, wow. it's, it's how they entirely run their transport systems. Well, it turns out that seaweeds, which is what I was working on, run on a sodium economy. Really? Mm-hmm. Whereas higher plants run on this proton economy. And so the question is, if you took, and, and it was well known at this point that Cara, being a freshwater alga, mm-hmm. ran on a proton economy. And so when I heard that there were salt-tolerant cars, again, most of the family is, is obligate freshwater, cannot grow in salt water. When I heard that there were species that could tolerate salt water, I said, are they on a salt economy or a proton? Oh, wow. And so I actually went to Australia to study this question. That's where I did my first postdoc. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> that was really great. I look forward to the postdoc thing. Yeah, postdocs are good. They're really good. Um, uh, and and uh, because there was a, a, a well-known um, uh, species, uh, the species name was not Cara, it was Lamprothamnion, okay. but it was in the Cara group. Yeah, and there's some subtribes in there. Yeah, it was in the Cara tribe. And so uh, it was growing in, uh, it grew in salt water, it grew in something called the Kurong, which is um, a, a region in the southeast of Australia, near Adelaide, mm-hmm. um, where there's a, uh, a lagoon that runs behind a sand dune along the um, uh, ocean, uh, the southern ocean there. And that lagoon, um, it's running through very dry uh, regions. It has a mouth in the Murray River, and the Murray River empties into the uh, southern ocean. And so uh, there's a gradient of salinity in this lagoon. When it's close to the mouth of the Murray, it's less saline. And then as you go back away, it's more saline. So you have this perfect gradient. You have a perfect gradient. And then plus, on the other side of the sand dunes, um, you can get uh, freshwater seeps where it grows in freshwater. Oh, wow. So there was this great gradient of salinity. So I was interested in, in checking this out. And so what we showed was it does indeed run on a proton economy. Really? And this is also true of seagrasses, it turns out. So if you have something that has evolved in freshwater or on the land, uh-huh. and it returns to the ocean, it continues to work on a proton economy. Okay, so these are kind of how you get a lot of conserved traits in those aspects. When you look at cetaceans, for example, it's this right. Right. transition back. Exactly. To, it's like the whales going back to the ocean. Fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now when you're looking at a lot of these plants in the context of what we're doing, so we salt roads, we're having a buildup of cadmium, which you have said in the past that it comes from tires. There's a lot of different industrial right. processes. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of... Um, I guess, saltifying a lot of our habitats. Yep. Now, there's Absolutely. a lot of application in looking at uh, Cara from that viewpoint. Yes. So is that kind of where you transitioned into kind of having that background as to where these plants adapted? Uh, you know, what what brought you eventually to the environmental contaminant side? Well, I, as I mentioned, I was always interested in the salt tolerance, mm-hmm. right? From my, from, from my graduate work, I was interested in how, how, from how the algae responded to varying salinity, and then these, uh, and but especially working with carophytes, which are then a model system for higher plants, mm-hmm. and how higher plants are um, dealing with the salt load. Not only is there a salt load, so here in the in the northeast, we're we're very concerned about the salt load from roads, as you mm-hmm. say, and this is having devastating effects, for instance, on um, maple sugar, mm-hmm. 
Mm. So sugar bushes and maple trees are quite sensitive to salt. Mm -hmm. And so if you salt the roads close to a a sugar bush, it's going to uh, cause problems. But on a bigger scale, if you look at, for instance, Australia, where I was, or uh, the West Coast here, irrigated agricultural fields in general become saline with time. Because of evaporation. Uh, Two things, because of evaporation. Um, uh, because when you add water, it's not distilled water. Mm-hmm. It has salts, and if that water evaporates off, it's going to leave the salts behind. It's like when you get a white crust on your house plants. Exactly. Yeah. But the other thing is, usually the areas that are dry, that so that we have to use um, irrigated agriculture, have been dry for a long time. And they uh, have salt deep in the soils, so that when it does rain there, it takes the salt and carries it to the subsoil. And so that then if you uh, uh, irrigate with a lot of water, that water will percolate down and bring up the salt. Oh, lovely. Salt. So it's a double whammy. It's a, it's a twofer, right? Wow. Um, so uh, irrigated uh, uh, agriculture. So this is, this is more important than just spoiling your sugar bush. This, yeah, this yeah. is it's California. Huge. This is Israel. This is um, uh, Australia destroying their sources of agriculture if they aren't careful about this. Wow. So I, one of the things I like to say is one of the first known um, irrigated agriculture systems, uh, which is in Pakistan, mm-hmm. um, is now extremely similar. So toxic. It's, yeah, in many places it's no longer possible to grow wheat there. So this is a future that is, is real and it something is. that um, we're probably facing down in the not too distant future. That's right. I, they're seeing it in in California, also especially when they're very close to the ocean, and they also have the problem of salt spray. Mm. Um, and mm. so uh, uh, this is a serious problem in in parts of California already. And so uh, salt tolerance is a very important question, and that's how I I came uh, started to work with that's that. Fascinating. And I'm I'm still doing that. Yes. And I I want you to know uh, one of the problems I've had using CAR as a model system for that is that uh, the molecular biology has been very hard for a number of reasons. It's extremely large genome. Mm-hmm. There are it has, it's it's very polyploid. That is to say. Uh, it's multiplied its genome a lots number of, of times. Redundancies. Lots of redundancies, so it's hard to, to pull genes out of. Um, uh, but the good news is the um, genome of a related carophyte uh, has just been sequenced. Oh. Hasn't been published yet, but it's been announced. But the and groundwork has been laid. The groundwork has been laid, and, and we are actually uh, communicating with someone who has that. Oh, that's wonderful. And so what we have known from our studies is um, transport systems having to do with sodium, mm-hmm. which are very important uh, and show up differently in the salt-tolerant and salt-sensitive species. And one of the most important one is, ones is the ability to export salt that comes in. So get rid of it. Get rid of it. The salt comes in when you give it, put it in a saline habitat, and the salt-tolerant ones are much better at getting rid of it. And they are very much better at getting rid of it when they have been acclimated to salt. Wow. So what we are doing in collaboration with this group, which is in Japan, is we are going to um, have them. So we know what genes are responsible for this or responsible for similar physiological yeah. um, uh, functions in, in Arabidopsis and other higher plants. And so what we are doing is we're working with this group in Japan to screen their genome mm. for similar genes. Looking for... And then, and then we will use those to... Templates to look for the genes in ours. Oh, that's cool. And we can ask these questions 
Are the gene, are, is the gene structure for these transport systems different? Are the signals to say, make more of this protein so we're going to be better at it mm. different? Or are the uh, cellular controls that are involved in stepping up the activity of these proteins different? Wow. So I'm very optimistic. This is a tool that we've been waiting for for a long time. Oh, that's great. So you're at a real precipice here. Yeah, that's right. So I'm very excited about this. Um, but the, but getting interested in cadmium was a sort of side issue, okay. and it was driven by a graduate student who wanted to do something which had a much more immediate impact, mm -hmm. as opposed to this so, um, sort of basic science aimed at improving things, but, but not going out in the field and doing stuff. She wanted to do much more field-oriented. Mm. Um, and so we came up with heavy metals, because I'm used to working with ion transport. Mm -hmm. These were ions. Um, and, and this is uh, Bernie Clavel, Bernadette Clavel. Oh yes, I've met her before. You've met yeah. her. She's really nice. She's very. She's she's remained active in plants. She's Wonderful. worked on um, invasive species. Oh okay. And then, um, so she's going to be continuing to work in this area on various things about. I might have to track her down. You track her down. She's yeah, going to die. That would be wonderful. Yep. So we we homed in on uh, cadmium. I had actually done a project with some of the people in environmental engineering here before, mm -hmm. looking at higher plants and trying to. Uh, use uh, higher plants to decontaminate a Superfund site in the in Southtown. Also some phytoremediation. Phytoremediation, right. So the use of plants to improve the environment, phytoremediation. And so I said, hey, why don't we do this with car? Mm -hmm. Great, she said. And so one of the things she did, this was entirely new for me, so I, I, <laughs> I give a lot of uh, kudos to Bernie for bringing this project into my lab. She used these soil-based, plant-based phytoremediation projects to uh, uh, to inform what she was going to do. Mm -hmm. And so this was an, a very important mistake that we made. <laughs> and, and it's a, make, a mistake that you make uh, as a new person coming yeah, into a field. Yeah. She didn't go back to the aquatic plant literature. She was using the harm literature. Uh, so what we did was we looked, we treated Cara not as a alga, but we looked at it as a higher plant. And so what she did was um, she was looking at the cadmium contamination in the sediment mm -hmm. and asking, can Cara remediate that? Just as when we were working at the Superfund site, it was a paint factory site. Oh, and okay. And uh, we were looking at whether plants could pull cadmium and lead and things out of the soil and bring it to the surface where they could be harvested. So we were asking the same question about Cara. Mm -hmm. Um, now, remember, we said Cara was a was a big alga, can be quite mm -hmm. quite long, and it is um, secured in the sediment uh, with not roots. They're not roots, but they're called rhizoids. So they have a function like roots, and they ramify through the sediment and they fix the alga so it doesn't float away. Mm -hmm. um, but we also knew from previous studies that they were capable of transport. So they do absorb similar They do things. absorb things. Wow. And so, for instance, there was one study on a species of cara which suggested that they absorbed about half of the phosphorus that they needed from mm. the sediment they were in and about half from the water that surrounded them. So uh, although a lot of algae don't do that, yeah. we knew cara was capable of okay. that. And so we went ahead, and sure enough, she showed that cara was um, capable of pulling cadmium out of the sediments, transferring it to the to the above sediment part, mm -hmm. which was now harvestable, and so you could harvest it and dry it off. Not only dry it off, but but really ash it. Yeah. So you reduce the solid parts to a very low volume, and then you could landfill that. Wow. And landfill that instead of 
landfilling all the sediments, which yeah, is what yeah, would be done yeah. for contaminated um, habitat. Which takes up so much space, and then you have everyone saying, not in my backyard. Well, it takes up space, uh, but it's also extremely disruptive of the environment while you're doing Indeed, it. Yes. You're dredging these soils, and as you dredge them, you, you resuspend the sediments. All of the nasties that were... That's right. Some 50 to 75 to 100 years, in some cases, of That's environmental right. contaminants That's now right. stirred back up. That's right. So these are kind of bioaccumulating these metals, and are, are, do, do, do they bioaccumulate salts? They do bioaccumulate, yes. Um, they, uh, they don't bioaccumulate the salts. They do, do to some extent, but as I said, the most important thing is getting, getting, it. getting rid of them. Okay. And that translates to higher plants, uh, because that's what roots of salt-tolerant plants do. So moderately salt-tolerant plants... Um, take up uh, the sodium into the into the root, but then re-export it back into the soil. Okay, so it's a cycling sort of. Right. I'll pick you up in the process and get rid of you. Somehow. Right. I can't. I can't prevent you from coming in. Yeah. You're coming in on some transporter, which is bringing in something that's important to me, like maybe potassium mm. or calcium or something. I can't help ions. it that you're coming in. Right. Ions. Um, but when you come in, I'm going to push you out again. Okay. So it's a defensive strategy rather that's than right. a, an active. Now, extreme halophytes will take it, take it up, and send it up to the leaves and concentrate it in the leaves. Yeah, I've eaten saltbrush leaves. It's mm-hmm. gross. It's kind of gross. Neat. It's kind of neat, but it's gross. Yeah. yeah. So, but for instance, the, the salt tolerant varieties of agriculture plants tend not to be extremely salt tolerant like that, mm. and they tend to rely on this root thing. Yeah. So imagine. we can so we can think of car in that sense as being a um, a, a good model for plant roots, uh, salt tolerant plant roots. Cool. So the the salt tolerant one does take up more cadmium than the salt sensitive one, mm-hmm. but we don't think that that is the key to why it's tolerant. We think this export yeah. is the real key to why it's tolerant. interesting. But for the cadmium, they do so that they take up the cadmium, and and we assume again it's coming in on uh, transport mechanisms for taking up required nutrients like zinc or maybe calcium. So things with similar charges. Things with th- things with similar charges. So. I guess my question there is, again, even though we've joked about it, that this isn't something that evolved in a lab. It's not evolving to supply us with hypothetical questions. It's evolving in nature, and there must be a mechanism, even though if it's just happenstance that it's coming in with something else. Is there an advantage or disadvantage to being able to accumulate these things, or is it just a byproduct of this um, transport system that's trying to just grab other charged particles? I don't, do not think there is an advantage to cadmium. Mm-hmm. There is to sodium. Mm-hmm. Because it can act as um, uh, to balance the osmotic pressure, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that salt solutions have a higher osmotic pressure, and so plants are going to lose water to the outside system. And so they, they can bring in the sodium, and that can be uh, part of what they do to uh, counter that tendency to lose water to salt. Or just like if you soak something in salt oh, yeah. water, it's yeah. going to dry out, right? Yeah. And so what they do is they bring in that sodium, um, and that sodium then will counteract that tendency to lose water. So it kind of helps retain it a bit. That's right. So, but uh, uh, what they do, but sodium uh, is toxic in high concentrations, mm-hmm. um, and it's toxic to the cytoplasm. So what plants have mm. is plants have these large central vacuoles. Just taught my students about this large central vacuole. <laughs> That's right. So And Cara has these very large cells, right? Yeah. These cells that are six, seven, eight inches long, and Ooh. most of them are central vacuoles. And that's probably a pretty big vacuole. And that's a pretty big vacuole. That's awesome. And so they stuff it in there. So they protect the cytoplasm uh-huh. from the toxicity of the sodium. 
by stuffing into the vacuole. So now they have the advantage it's going oh. to prevent it from losing water. Yeah. But it's not going to pickle the cyclones. Wow. Yeah. So that's another reason. That, I mean, that probably points to the bioaccumulation aspect. It just has a giant storage tank. It for... has a giant storage tank. Remember that plants don't have kidneys. They mm. don't have excretory system. Mm -hmm. Right? And so if you're an alga in the water, you have the one option. Now we talked about sodium. comes in, just kick it out. Yeah. If you're a higher plant above ground, you don't have that option. Suppose you're a cell in a plant leaf, mm -hmm. and you have something you don't want, and you kick it out. It's going to stay in the leaf. <laughs> it's there. It's going to stay right there. It's not yeah. going to move very far because it's not going to diffuse very far through the cell wall. Mm -hmm. So kicking stuff out of the cell is not a good strategy for a yeah. leaf cell. The mechanics just aren't there. The mechanics aren't there. And you don't have a circulatory system to move it to a kidney and get rid of it. Plants mm. don't pee. <laughs> so <laughs> There's one thing you're taking away today. <laughs> Plants don't Plants pee. don't pee. I like that. So they stuff stuff in the central vacuole, and they stuff all kinds of stuff. They stuff in um, metabolites, mm. uh, chemicals that they make that break down or are no longer functional. They will stuff it. So the vacuole is a kind of internal garbage dump. Wow. Right. So, so we think, and this is one of the things we're interested in looking at now in this system, we think that what is happening is that uh, there are compounds in the cell which will complex with the cadmium. And then there are proteins which will pick up these compounds that are mm -hmm. complexing with the cadmium and move them into the cytoplasm. So it's almost like detoxifying. Sorry, sorry move them into the vacuum. Oh, okay. Vacuum. So, so they're first of all being detoxified because yeah. they're being bound to this uh, uh, chemical in the cytoplasm. And second of all, they're being uh, removed from the cytoplasm and put in the vacuole. Where, wow. where where the amount of damage they can do is limited. That's amazing. Yeah. That just blew my mind. That's <laughs> that's so cool. I love uh, just how all of those things come together, and it's all based on this system that the plant has no choice but to operate within. And this, the, the standards were probably, if Kara is an example uh, of this, was probably set very early on, Yes. and now it's dealing with all the crap we're throwing at it <laughs> to right. some extent. That's right. That is so cool. So... This has so many applications, A, to cleaning up environments, to creating better, more sustainable croplands, um, mm -hmm. dealing with the damage already done by right. both industry and agriculture. So mm -hmm. from this sort of macroalgae transitional plant, you're getting so much across the spectrum <laughs> and applied everything. That's so cool. And that's what, you know, when you see these people freaking out, I can't believe we're funding research on an algae. This is why. <laughs> this is why. Yeah. So there's so many different ways we can argue for this kind of stuff. So that's really neat. Wow. I think uh, I think we hit it. I think right. this is a really great introduction. I I I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you much. Again, right. this is Dr. Biss, and I'll put a link to her website on my website here, and uh, you guys can check out some of this awesome research for yourselves. And I'm gonna have to get in touch with Bernie. All right. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. All right. What a fun blast from the past. That was such a cool episode, such a great conversation. And as I mentioned at the beginning, Dr. Bisson was the first person I ever took a true botany course from. So a big thank you goes out to her for setting that foundation in my mind. As always, I post links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast so you can follow up on all of the stuff we talk about in each episode. You can also find ways to support the show over there. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can become a patron 
and support the show a little bit each month. Or you can show your support by purchasing, say, a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. All of those are fantastic ways to help keep this show up and running, and I couldn't be doing it without support. So thank you to everyone that's pitched in. Go consider supporting it today. At the very least, make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in because there's always great conversations just over the horizon. But that is entirely enough out of me. I thank you all for listening. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.